TED Audio Collective. Tired of unnecessary payroll errors? Stop them in their tracks. With Paycom, employees do their own payroll. They're able to identify errors and fix them before submission, right in the app. Because no one can afford for payroll to be wrong. Not HR and payroll teams, not leaders, and definitely not employees. Shorted paychecks, timesheet corrections, unentered sick days, missing overtime hours, and expense mistakes are, well, unnecessary for everyone. Manage the process to make payday right with Paycom. Learn more at paycom.com slash soundrise. That's paycom.com slash soundrise. Hi, I'm Debbie Millman. Canva is great for designing visual content for work, no matter what industry or department you work in. Now your next presentation with Canva Presentations. Start with a professionally designed template and use it as a springboard for your design. It's a serious time saver. Time to present but can't be there in person? Enter Canva Talking Presentations. Record yourself presenting and add your talking head to your slides so your audience can watch your perfected presentation anywhere, anytime. Start designing today at canva.com. Designed for work. I didn't share all that much work, I don't think, when you were growing up. I would leave the house around five in the morning and see Nick at night. The network, not the boy. (laughs) From the TED Audio Collective, this is Design Matters with Debbie Millman. For 18 years, Debbie Millman has been talking with designers and other creative people about what they do, how they got to be who they are, and what they're thinking about and working on. On this episode, father and son Stephen and Nick Heller talk about their careers and about the weirdness and wonders of New York City. A lot of people, like whenever I'm walking with somebody and something outlandish happens, they're like, why does this always happen when I'm with you? This conversation took place in front of a live audience on October 13th at the 2023 AIGA Design Conference in New York City. A native New Yorker, Stephen Heller is also one of the most influential art directors, design thinkers, and cultural critics in the entire world. He started his illustrious career working for many 60s-era counterculture periodicals before joining the New York Times as an art director of the op-ed page and the book review, where he worked for over three decades. In 1997, he became co-founder and co-chair of the MFA design program at the School of Visual Arts, and also co-founded five other grad programs, including the Masters in Branding program I run, which was his idea. In addition to writing over 200 books, including his recent splendid memoir, Growing Up Underground, he's contributed to and edited numerous design publications and is currently the co-owner and editor-at-large at at printmagazine.com. It's very possible that his love of New York may have washed off on his son, Nicholas Heller. 
Nick is an acclaimed commercial director and documentarian, better known to his two and a half million social media followers as New York Nico. And Nick Heller loves New York City. As the New York Times unofficial talent scout of New York, Nick is known for creating stories that document the real, one-of-a-kind people and places in our city. And New York loves Nick Heller right back. In 2023, he was featured on the Why We Love New York issue of New York Magazine, the Christmas issue of Time Out New York. His commercial clients include Shake Shack, Nike, the New York Knicks, Major League Baseball, Calvin Klein, and Timberland. Nicholas's love affair with stories has extended into narrative filmmaking seen in his latest short order film, Out of Order, which premiered at the 2022 Tribeca Festival. And like father, like son, his first book, New York Nico and Friends Guide to New York City, will be released in 2024. Nick, my first question is for you. In a video about you on Bloomberg News, you confessed that you've never read any of your dad's books. Is Thanks. that true? Um, <laughs> I, I read his most recent book. I read his memoir. Okay. That came out before the memoir, so yeah. So no. So the education of a graphic designer, no? But ask him if he looked at the pictures. Did you look at the pictures? I skimmed through a few of them, yeah. <laughs> There was a period in my life where I didn't know what I was going to do for a living, so I... Oh, we'll get to that. Yeah, okay. <laughs> so, you're both native New Yorkers. What makes New York such a meaningful location for you? Why here and nowhere else? Steve, you first. There isn't any place else. Fair. I grew up in a little town called Stuyvesant Town, and there was grass and trees and brick buildings, and I thought that was heaven. It is. Um, and I work only a f few blocks away from where I was born. So every time I go there, I have great memories. And you can see the Empire State Building if you crick your neck. Uh, you can see the East River when it was clean. Uh, New York is just an incredible place. Yeah, um, well, unlike my dad, I went to school uh, outside of New York, so I got to experience outside of New York for a little bit, and then I did the LA thing for six months after school, and it just made me realize how special New York is, and I just think as, as a born and raised New Yorker, there's some people who can stay here their whole lives, there's others that can't wait to get out, and I'm one of those that just wants to stay here forever. Nick, in addition to your famous father, your mom is the legendary designer, Louise Feely, who happens to be here in the front row. Um, yes. Um, and she has helped create the visual vernacular of New York City in her work with restaurants and brands. As a result, you grew up surrounded by their famous friends, people including Art Spiegelman, Seymour Quast, Paula Scher. Mm -hmm. And in fact, Paula told me that it was she who actually brought you home from the hospital right after you were born, yeah. a distinction that I think no one in this room has but you. Oh, yeah. 
Um, I understand you even worked with Aquafina at a movie rental store in the West Village when you were 16 years old. Mm -hmm. How did your parents' professional and social lives inform your ambition? That's a great question. Um, you know, they never really pushed me one way or the other. <clears throat> I think in high school, they saw that I was really interested in film and they encouraged that. They never told me to go in the direction of becoming a designer, which probably would have been the easiest route. But yeah, they just encouraged whatever, whatever I wanted to do. They had faith in it. And uh, I, I appreciate them a lot for that. Um, and, in, and in terms of growing up with famous designers, I didn't know who these people were other than, you know. Just Aunt Paula. Aunt Paula, Uncle Seymour, yeah. So. Steve, how did Nick's creativity first manifest as he was growing up? What were some of the first things that you witnessed him doing that impressed you creatively? Well, the first thing I noticed when he started filmmaking, which was in middle school, was that they were some of the more violent films I'd ever seen. Mm. And we were, uh, it was suggested to us that we take him to uh, see some counseling. Uh, I figured it was just a phase. And that was the kind of uh, filmmaking that was being done at that time. It was before Marvel Heroes. Uh, but he's always been laser sharp when it comes to filmmaking and making images and telling stories. I came across a um, quote, Nick, you were talking about how making your own films at school, um, and you described them very similarly to the way your dad just did, um, very messed up subject matter, as you put it, and you stated that you would watch your teachers watching your films, and they were like, what the fuck is going on with this kid? And so I'm wondering, just positing here a thought, um, if this might be genetically inherited, because I want to read a short entry from your memoir, Growing Up Underground, and then you'll all tell us if there's some genetic connection. There was a plus side to staying at home. I started to obsessively draw pictures of my feelings. My drawings soon became the main topic of my twice-weekly therapy sessions. You'll understand why after I described the themes. Little naked men without genitals, adorned with long Jesus-inspired hair and thick mustaches, often hanging on crucifixes or crouched over toilet bowls, puking their guts out. I drew the other characters later, and all involved the removal of limbs or moan with extremely sumptuous breast. Sometimes I'd be more prosaic, drawing trees struggling to hold onto their leaves and bending in opposite directions against strong winds. Other drawings included prisoners behind walls, bars, and impediments. Pretty obvious symbolism, no? The shrink was so enamored by my work that I felt more confident. To my unhappy surprise, my mom said that she loved or at least was morbidly fascinated by the drawings. Years later, with my reluctant permission, she cut some of them up and laminated them as a collage into a coffee tabletop. As soon as both my parents passed away, I found and disposed of that table <laughs> along with dozens of albums of their travel snapshots. I gave some of my surviving drawings to my son, Nick, who showed an honest 
interest in them. And so there, gentlemen, is the genetic connection between the two of you. <laughs> I was very wow. proud of that. Yeah. I apologize. <laughs> uh, when you read my words, they always sound much better than when, <laughs> when I write them. Nick, did those drawings influence you in any way? Did they sort of open up a freedom to express yourself in whichever way you wanted to? Not directly, but I guess subconsciously, yeah. So, yeah, I, I was always, I loved his drawings. They were, they're so cool. I still have one of them. It's like a, a little naked guy in a canister full of ice. You know the one I'm talking about? But it's, it's sitting by my desk. Through therapy, I've learned yeah. to forget those drawings. <laughs> so. Now, Nick, you, you talked about going, leaving New York to mm -hmm. go to college, and you went to Emerson College in Boston to mm -hmm. study film. What drove that decision? I just wanted to get out of the city at that point. You know? And we drove him. Yeah. I, you know, I could have easily gone to SVA, had a, a great life, but I just I was born and raised in the city. It was time to get out. So. And so you started making short films that you shot, directed, and edited, and have said that you recognized from the outset that you weren't a skilled technical filmmaker mm -hmm. and decided to work that into the aesthetic of your movies. Yeah. Do you still feel that way? I mean, I can't see that you don't have a strong aesthetic. No, uh, well, I didn't have a, a technically strong aesthetic in college because I wasn't really friends with any other filmmakers who could help me with production, so I kind of had to do it myself. So the films I, were, I was making was like from the perspective of a camera operator or a security camera or something that, you know, I, I didn't need a skilled filmer for. Um, but now, you know, I work with a really talented crew and I can just focus on directing. I didn't really have the luxury of that before. You started making music videos in your junior and senior year of college. And after graduating, you decided to move to Los Angeles. Mm -hmm. Why? Um, so I did a year back in New York after college, and I was making these sort of low-budget underground music videos and kind of figured the next logical step for me would be to move to Los Angeles and make it as like this big-time music video director. So like a Spike Jones hype Exactly. Williams. That was the, the exact plan, yeah. Um, and six months out there, I kind of moved on a whim. I'm born and raised in New York, so I never had a driver's license. And this was pre-Uber, so I had to bike everywhere. I, I failed you my failed three I times. failed my test three times. Um, do you have a license now? I do. Yeah, I got Finally. it two years ago. Um, and he drives me around now. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, I moved out there, and it was just like a rude awakening that I wasn't going to make it as a music video director. And I came back to New York. Well, after I think six months, six months, six yeah. months you realized it wasn't working out, and at this time in your life, you felt totally defeated. Yeah. Um, you decided to come back to New York. You moved back in with your folks mm -hmm. whose big shoes you didn't think you would ever be able to fill. Mm -hmm. Steve, what was that like for you at that time to see Nick struggling? How did you help? How did you think you could best help him at that point? Well, first of all, I was glad to see him back. When he left for LA, I cried. It was very sad seeing that empty room and Louise wouldn't let me put my stuff in it. <laughs> um, Why not? Because it was sprawled all over the house anyway. <laughs> uh, but I actually felt 
that he would find his way, that he had this passion. And I thought of myself at his, not at his age, but when I felt lost and something comes up. You know, you just grasp onto the fates and lean into them. And so I felt he would find something, and uh, he did. I, I, we, th- we both felt if we tried to help him out, that wouldn't be helping him. Uh, that must have taken a lot of restraint. Well, Louise was more motherly than I was fatherly. What do you mean? She wanted to get him in a place where he'd be happy. And I was content to watch him try to do that, knowing that he would. You know, we talk so much or hear so much now, um, certainly if, if you read New York Magazine, about Nepo babies or Nepo babies. Um, but, Nick, you seem to have always had a very clear desire to make it on your own and not follow in your foot in the in the big shoes that you said you needed you would need to fill to be even remotely as successful as either of your parents when you came back to New York what were you envisioning your life could be and how were you getting through that struggle how were you handling it emotionally so the one time I actually looked at one of his books was when I was in LA and I was contemplating like I'm not going to make it as a filmmaker. Like, maybe I should try my hand at design. It's, like, in my blood. So I, like, took a few looks, flipped through a few pages, and I was like, ah, this is not for me. But, um, but no, I came back. And, <laughs> really gave it a robust yeah, try. <laughs> he uses big words, you know. Um, I, but, yeah, I came back to New York, and, and I was just, I, honestly, I didn't, I didn't know what I was going to do. I could never see myself working like a real job. The only real job I had was at that movie rental store where they, uh, they fired me. And, and I quote, because he has ADD, but then we kind of like, I guilt tripped him into giving me a job where I was cleaning DVDs in the back room. But that's another story. Well, that sounds um, like an interesting one. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, so I, I, didn't, I didn't know what I was going to do. And then it all kind of came to me one day when I was just like hanging out and in uh, Union Square Park and kind of contemplating my next move and saw this New York City street character who I'd seen all throughout high school and always wanted to talk to but was kind of too shy up until that point. But I used that low point in my life as an opportunity to talk to him. We ended up walking around the city together and then I asked if I could make a documentary on him. And that was the six foot, seven inch Jew who freestyle raps for you. Yeah, yeah. So, so how did how did you do that? How did you approach? First of all, how did you find the courage to do that when you were feeling so introverted I, and defeated? I just forced myself because I was like, I literally have nothing else going for me right now. Like, I might as well just get out of my comfort zone and speak to someone who, you know, I might be able to do something with. Um, and actually, that wasn't my intention to do a documentary with this guy right away. I just kind of wanted to, like, I don't know. I just had nothing else to lose. So I was just like... Let's see if this guy is responsive to me, and he was. I asked him if I could make a documentary. I had never made one before. He said yes. And then that led to 16 other short, like, slice of life, day in the life documentaries on New York City characters. 
You said that this was an interesting turning point in New York, wherein a lot of the folks were leaving or dying or just were fed up with being struggling artists, so they left. Did you want to preserve their legacies? What was it that attracted you to this specific yeah. group of people? Yeah, it was a mixture of their legacies, but also that type of New York City character. Um, you know, Ted Avon, the six foot seven Jew, was just like a one of a kind New York City character who would walk around with this 10 pound sign that says the six foot seven Jew will freestyle rap for you. And he would just go up to people and they would, they would have him freestyle rap. And like, there's no one else like that in New York and I, at the time, I was like, I don't know how long a person like this can last in New York. Um, so I just wanted to preserve his legacy, but also preserve the le legacy of those types of New Yorkers. Steve, in many ways, this reminds me of the work you've been doing with your writing, ensuring that design history is preserved and legacies are made aware of. And I was wondering if you both felt that similarity and the very different, but sort of another eerie connection in the work that you do. When I think about it, I, I see the connections that we have. I didn't share all that much work, I don't think, when you were growing up. I would leave the house around five in the morning and see Nick at night. The network, not the boy. <laughs> uh, and uh, I saw that, uh, you know, he was doing what I would have wanted to do. What do you mean? I, well, I always wanted to make films, and I got sidetracked by cartooning and design. And I figured at some point maybe I would. I was art director for Global Village, which was the first video documentary film center in New York. And I was doing books on New York, so there was a connection between us there. And Today, I actually can say I'll never make a movie, but I'll live vicariously off of what Nick does. So in, in a selfish way, he's extending what my wish was. Nick, did you know that your dad wanted to make films? Well, I, I know that he had a dream of making a film about an all-girls... An all girls in the band. Oh, yeah. Uh, it was about... Uh, girls who marched in marching bands all over America. Why that particular topic, Steve? I, mean, I just that's thought really it niche. was cute. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and I was thinking of something that nobody else was doing. There might have been a reason for it. <laughs> Nick, you ever think you'll pick up that mantle? <laughs> who knows? Sounds interesting now that, you, now that you say it like that in front of all these people. I do need to tell you at this moment, and you don't know this about me, Steve, um, I was in my high school marching band as a baton twirler. I've seen the photographs. No, you have not. There are none that exist. <laughs> I saw a photograph of you in a very, very batonish dress. Really? <laughs> Somebody's been doing his own research, I see. <laughs> um, Nick, from, from there, from the, making these short films, your career has been 
a hockey stick straight to the stars. Your social media following has grown to over 2 million followers as people have begun discovering your films. You were commissioned to make films for TED and the MTA and commercials for the Knicks and Nike. You had a short film titled Out of Order premiere last year at the Tribeca Film Festival, which really has one of the greatest lines of all time. You have Dookie on your pants. Um, Say it in, in dialect. You have Dookie on your pants. <laughs> When Nick did his um, New Yorker accent contest, I actually wrote him and said, I think I can win this. <laughs> Just so you know, I think I can win. Um, but I didn't. Um, how, how did you get the title, the unofficial talent scout of New York? Um, I, I gave it to myself. <laughs> uh, I didn't want to call myself the official talent scout because I felt like that sounded a little narcissistic, so. Um, I gave unofficial. So got, got what do you it. see your role in making these films as? Um, I, I mean, I, the, the unofficial talent sketch. So talent to me is like, it's not just like someone who can juggle or someone who can sing. It's just like a one of a kind personality. You know, going back to Ted Avon, who was the star of my first, you know, short. Um, he's just like a one of a kind character. He's super unique. There's never going to be anyone else like him. Um, so to me, he's talent. And uh, my Instagram page is just kind of like, you know, a Rolodex of all of these talented individuals that I've crossed paths with over the year. And they're almost like your main set of characters now. Yeah. They, they, you see them in numerous places yeah. pop up. Yeah, what? like, I mean, I'm sure, you know, the, the, those are just two commercials that I've made, but I try to, like, feature them in a lot of my work. There are a lot of uh, people in the, in the first spot that you'd see in the second spot. So, um, yeah, I just, like, kind of creating this little world within this big city. Hi, I'm Debbie Millman. Canva is great for designing visual content for work, no matter what industry or department you work in. Now your next presentation with Canva Presentations. Start with a professionally designed template and use it as a springboard for your design. It's a serious time saver. Time to present but can't be there in person? Enter Canva Talking Presentations. Record yourself presenting and add your talking head to your slides so your audience can watch your perfected presentation anywhere, anytime. Start designing today at canva.com, designed for work. I love art. I love looking at art, collecting art, and showing it off in my home. And FrameBridge helps me affordably custom frame all my art. FrameBridge has a curated selection of frame styles and design experts to make it fun and easy to choose the perfect frame for every piece. Their pricing is fair and transparent and is based upon the size of your piece so you know exactly what you'll pay up front. Ordering online is simple and convenient. You can choose to upload a digital photo for them to print and frame, or you can mail your piece with a secure prepaid packaging provided by FrameBridge. And if you prefer to buy your frames in person, you can. 
Framebridge has stores in New York City, Boston, Philadelphia, D.C., Maryland, Virginia, Chicago, and Atlanta. Visit a store and you can get one-on-one expert design advice and see their collection of frame styles in person. Visit framebridge.com or a retail store to custom frame just about anything. How do you manage to find the moments that you post on your Instagram, which seem like they would be enormously difficult to art direct or orchestrate, but you seem to just find them. I don't know. You got to ask the universe. It's just like kind of, I don't know, a, a lot of people, like whenever I'm walking with somebody and something kind of outlandish happens, they're like, why does this always happen when I'm with you? You know, like... I don't know if it's because I'm outside a lot or there is like a magnet that I, that I have, but um, I don't know, it's just. I would say he is determined. We were walking through uh, Koreatown and he says to me as we're having a, an in-depth conversation about chewing gum, hmm. uh, wait here, stop, just wait. And I see him pull his camera out of his pocket and run after this mother and child and he just spends the half the block shooting them. Then he comes back, I'm done, and that's it. And then you went back to the chewing gum conversation? Yes. <laughs> I've often thought of this almost the same thing about you, Steve, in that you write every single day. Steve has a column on printmagazine.com called The Daily Heller, which is, in fact, The Daily Heller. He writes every single day. And I, again, another commonality, you both see your world through this lens of expression. But one of the other things that I thought was so interesting about both of you is how removed you both are individually from the work that you produce. So you both focus almost solely on your subjects and not yourselves. Steve, in all of your 200 plus books, only one is a memoir. Nick, you're never in the spotlight in your films and even have a mask covering most of your face on the photo of your bio page on your website. So this is contrary to the way that a lot of people work these days. Can you both talk about the decision to always focus the spotlight on others? Well, we're just not as interesting. Well, I mean, speak for yourself, well, first no, of all. Well, no, I'm saying as He's a... He's really interesting. No, no, you're right. <laughs> um, no, but I agree with him. He's not that interesting. <laughs> I see Louise protesting. <laughs> um, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I'm just like, you know, if you were to go to my Instagram and see all the amazing people I feature on there, you know, I'm not as, as exciting as they are. Do you really believe that? No, well, yeah. No, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, the, uh, journalists, and I call what he does journalism, and I call what I do sometimes journalism, are supposed to be reporters and recorders and not be the story itself. I'm a little different. I did do a memoir, which... The first chapter is me, 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 me. Uh, That's literally the title of the chapter. And 
I do include myself in pieces now because sometimes objectivity is just not appropriate. But I'm trying to work on part two of the memoir and I just can't come up with a good hook and I'm not the hook. So it has to be a memoir of somebody else where I just happen to be standing alongside like Robin and Batman. Mm, I think there might be a collaboration that could happen here. Um, Steve, during COVID, you helped create and curate a Times Square public service campaign about being alone together. And Nick, you used your filmmaking skills to help businesses actually stay in business. For example, you worked with Henry Yao, the owner of a mom-and-pop shop on the Lower East Side, and you posted about how Yao was behind on his rent and directed followers to a custom-launched GoFundMe, which, after you posted it, quickly made its goal. And there was an interesting piece about this story um, on the shopkeepers, about your work, and talked about a project called National Assignment. Um, and this was developed from one of your Instagram posts, and it's designed to give university students real-life assignments to help struggling businesses by assisting them with social media, e-commerce, and more. And this felt to me like the sort of one of the highest purposes that design can have mm-hmm. to help others survive and thrive and really fulfill their purpose. What advice might you have for anyone inspired by this type of work that you're doing so that they could potentially replicate what you're doing for others? Well, specifically for for businesses or just in general? Just in general. Um, I think if you have a set of skills that, you know, you can use to to help others, like, do it, you know? Um, See who needs the help. And, like, that's, that's kind of... What I like to do a lot on Instagram is I have a lot of friends who are business owners and New Yorkers who might need a little bit of help. And, you know, I'll often kind of just like see if they need anything from me because maybe I physically can't help them, but I have a following of people who would be happy to help them. Yeah, whatever your skill set is, whatever you have sort of access to, just you can offer it up. And if they want to accept it, they'll accept it. If not, they won't. By the way, this came out of nowhere. Louise and I had no idea that he was doing this. So you keep secrets from your parents? Uh, we keep track of Nick <laughs> through, through Instagram and, and uh, Vimeo and the like. But the kinds of things that he did during COVID especially were just so surprising to us. Uh, that we'd look at each other and say, we made that. (laughs) And one day, uh, something came in the mail, and it was a medal from President Biden. I know, a presidential medal at Mm. your age. Fortunately, it wasn't a few years before. Mm. Yes. (laughs) And we'll just leave it at that. Um... I have two more quick questions before we end. Um, Nick, I know you have a guide to New York coming out in 2024. Mm-hmm. Steve, you have at least three books coming out next year. Um, can you tell us a little bit about your upcoming books? Well, I actually don't have three books coming out next year. I decided to cut back. So two? <laughs> two. <laughs> 
Slacker. Um, one just came out that I did with Seymour Quast, who is 92 and just won the National Design Award. Yay, Seymour. Uh, and it's called Hell. <laughs> and it was Seymour's idea that I was, that I rejected because I thought I lived enough hell uh, in my city travels. But it turns out to be one of the best books he's ever done. And one of the most fun books I ever had, finding 88 hells to write about. Mm. Hell is a very popular place. Mm. And another book that's coming out shortly is on Leo Leone. So we go from hell to uh, a great (laughs) designer and children's illustrator, painter, and sculptor, who Louise and I befriended in the latter part of his life and... Uh, it's a show at the Norman Rockwell Museum opening November 18th. And uh, I'm doing it with Leonard Marcus, the children's book historian who's handling the children's books, uh, and Annie Leone, his granddaughter, who handles all of the, the flame work, all of his artifacts. And it's just a joy because... At an AIGA conference, the first one in Boston, I gave the speech that introduced Leone to getting his medal. And I was terrified. And when it was over, Massimo Vignelli got up on stage. And their Italian connection, even though Leo was Dutch, uh, came through in the most warm-hearted beautiful, loving way that I felt like had I missed that occasion, I would have missed something very big in my life. Nick, what about you? Tell us about your book. Um, I have a a guide to New York um, coming out. It's like a shopping and food guide um, that I've been working on for like two years now. It's going to come out next year. Steve, will you read it? (laughs) Of course not. (laughs) (laughs) Speaking of warm-hearted, please indulge me in a really sappy final question, only because I really want to know the answer. What is the one thing that you are most proud of in each other? Well, for me, that's easy. Whenever you say, he's a good kid, it either is one of those rote things you say, and you can't really pinpoint it, or it's something truly from the heart and somewhat surprising. And Nick is a very warm, giving, generous person. And I felt that the minute I saw a series of his that is hard to find now called The Queens of Kings about uh, female impersonators in Brooklyn. And he got right to their humanity. And when you think about what goes on in this country about gender discrimination and sexual uh, prejudices, uh, this series just cuts right through all of that and it pervades all of his work. So in addition to just being proud of him for being, uh, that's the one thing that stays in my mind and I tell people whenever I have a chance and whenever there's a lull in the conversation. (laughs) As you should, yes. 
And uh, I'm, I'm proud of, I mean, there's a lot to be proud of, but I'm most proud of his hustle. I feel like I kind of got that from him. You know, he's always working. Um, you know, it's, it's hard to keep up with everything he's doing. Um, and it's, uh, it's inspiring to me and I'm very proud of him for, for just continuing with, with all his hard work. What about my singing? His singing's really good too. <laughs> Headgear. <laughs> proud of that. Nicholas Heller, Stephen Heller, thank you for making so much work that matters. Thank you for making the world a more beautiful place. Nick Heller, Stephen Heller. Design Matters is produced for the TED Audio Collective by Curtis Fox Productions. The interviews are usually recorded at the Masters in Branding program at the School of Visual Arts in New York City, the first and longest-running branding program in the world. The editor-in-chief of Design Matters Media is Emily Wyland. <laughs>